Have you ever heard the counsel, uh, you should think about your funeral? Like, uh, they give you this um, thought exercise where you're supposed to think about your funeral. And uh, think about what it is that people are going to say about you at your funeral. So if someone stands up and gives a eulogy for you, what is it that you want them to say? Uh, you know, and this can go a couple ways. You can think of what they actually would say. <laughs> I mean, think about my life. What would, what would they actually say? Or, or like, what would I want them to say? And the, the point of the thought exercise is essentially, when you think about your life, and when it's all said and done, and when people are gathered and they reflect on your life, what will be said about you? What will have been true during your life? When you think about that, that's supposed to change the way that you live now. So with the perspective of knowing birth, life, death, looking back on your life now, change the way you live now. That, that can be helpful. I wonder if you've ever had this uh, experience where you've been at a funeral for someone that you knew and someone that you loved and you thought you knew them well, and then you hear the eulogy that's given and you hear about their birth and you hear stories about when they were living and what they grew up and what they went through and what their life was like and, and then towards the end and how they died and you realize by the end of it, I knew this person for a long time, but I didn't know that person. Has that ever happened to you? You think you know someone so much better, and, and, and you kind of regret it because you're like, if I knew some of those stories, I would have asked about them now, or if, if I knew they had been through that, I would have related to them different. It would have changed our relationship with that person if we had that perspective. What I want to do is I want to change our relationship now with prayer by thinking about prayer's eulogy. Where, where is it all going? Where did prayer come from? Where does it live? And when and where and how will it die? That in my goal in thinking about these things, again, as we think about the future reality, that thought exercise is to bring it back into the present and change our relationship. If I hadn't known that, I would have lived different. This is, this is what I want to do for us this morning with prayer. Any good eulogy begins with birth. So we want to begin with birth. We want to ask the question simply, where is prayer born? Where does it come from? This, this matters when you're thinking about getting to know someone, right? Knowing where they were born. Like if, if you ever watch any of those shows on TV about like hoarders, you know, the people that like fill their house, they jam them with stuff and there's like these, just these pathways to walk through and you're like, how did that person get like that? A lot of times, if you actually take the time to hear their story, you find out there's, there's something about whether they were born during depression or wartime or, or into a family that was poverty stricken or whatever. There's something formative about the way that they were born, the context in which they were born that shaped the way that they live. Maybe uh, in a happier situation, you're dating someone, you're getting to know them, and you're, and, and you're like, oh, I wonder why they respond this way, or this is quirky, or whatever, right? And then you meet their parents, and you're like, oh, I get it now. Uh, a, a lot of times, if, if you understand something about their family of origin, something about their parents, where they were born, the situation they were born into, it helps you to understand who they are, right? So where was prayer born? We want to understand prayer. Where was it born? Because it wasn't created, right? We've read Genesis 1 and 2. We've been there. We've thought about this over the summer. We thought about when God created and God created everything good and, and God's people would walk in the garden with God in the cool of the day. God created. He spoke. There was light and there was order and there was peace and there was flourishing and the multiplication of life, but there was no prayer. So where does prayer come from? Well, you know the story, Adam and Eve, in the goodness of what God had given them in the paradise of Eden, 
believed the lies of Satan over the words of God. They took of the fruit and they ate, like God said, in the day that you eat of it, you will surely die. And so they eat and they die, and there's, there's separation from God that begins. They're sent away from God, exiled away from his presence, and they begin to live life in a fallen world. But God, when he pronounced the curse, when he told them about the death, and when he, when he banished them from the garden, even in the midst of the bad news, God also gave good news. He also gave a promise, a promise that there would be one, like a, a seed of a woman, the seed of the woman who would come and who would deliver. He would crush the head of the serpent. The serpent would bite his heel, but he would crush the head of the serpent, the one who has the power of death. There would be one, the seed of a woman, who would deliver. So there's the promise of a child deliverance. And then you get to Genesis 4, and, and Adam and Eve start having children. This is amazing. There's Cain, and there's Abel, and Abel is, is pleasing to the Lord, and it looks like things are starting to turn around. Things are, things are going the right way. There's one who, maybe he is the one who's going to redeem us, the promised one, but then what happens? Cain kills him. That's why there's so much joy at the birth of the children, the seed, the offspring, and so much grief at their death. And then we read of the whole line of Cain and how everything descends so quickly into chaos and disorder and injustice and wickedness and oppression. But that's why there's so much joy again at the end of the chapter. This, this note, this striking note of hope that we just read that, that now Seth is born. God has appointed another one. So here's a revived hope. You said there'd be a seed from Eve and there was, but he was killed. But now God has appointed another one. Maybe this is the one who will deliver us. But then what happens? He lives and gets old, just like Adam has lived and gotten old. And now Enosh is born and growing old. We have moved on from the promise of God somewhere between hundreds and a thousand years of life outside the garden. Believing, okay, God said there would be a deliverer and we're looking for it, but it's not here. And in the meantime, while we wait, we look around and our kids are killing each other and the men are taking multiple wives and they're threatening revenge and they're killing their servants and there's all kinds of disorder. What's, what's happening here? When we read, at that time, people began to call on the name of the Lord. We're reading of the birth of prayer. Prayer is born. Prayer is born in a context of brokenness, a context of desperation. It's at this moment, as decades turn into centuries and approach millennia, and as evil spreads, that Adam and Eve and their descendants are beginning to realize that the situation is so much worse than we ever thought. The reality of their sin is settling in with gravity. We broke it, and we can't fix it. There's a settled sense of desperation. What do we do? We're powerless. Now, powerlessness, the recognition, the acknowledgement of our own powerlessness, this is, one of, this, is, this is one of the parents of prayer. You need this for prayer to be born. You need to have some kind of recognition that we can't fix this. 
So an awareness of our powerlessness is key, but you need two parents because if you just have the one, if it's only a sense of our powerlessness, our, it leads to hopelessness, we end up no better off than Judas. We're just honest about our situation. We can't fix it, and we go and we hang ourselves because that's it. It's broken. There's no hope. But we need two parents, one, our powerlessness, but the other, the power and the promises of God an awareness of the power and the promises of God, a belief in the power and promises of God such that we call on his name to fulfill his word, to do what he said he would do. And when the two are wed, a sense of our powerlessness, but his power, the two are wed and they conceive, they give birth to prayer. At that time, people began to call on the name of Yahweh. God of the world, who created the world, had given them a promise that he would redeem the world. He would redeem his people from sin, suffering, and death. When they realize their hopelessness, their desperation, they call on his name to keep his word. That's, that's true in the text. It's true in our lives, too. You never really learn what it means to pray, to call on the name of the Lord, until you actually realize how desperate your own situation is. You can have this in all kinds of different contexts, right? Like as a, as a dad, especially when the kids are little and you, 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 know, you do fun things and you know, you're wrestling. Our kids love wrestling, especially when they were little. And so you're wrestling and you get like, I got four of them, right? So they're like, they're crawling over here and climbing up here. And one of them climbs over the head and you're having fun. Everybody's laughing. And then all of a sudden someone goes like, bam, down on the floor. And it's, oh, it's okay. It's okay. And then they get up and there's like blood. And you're like, oh no, it's, it's not okay. Don't tell your mom. You know, that, that kind of moment. Um, where it's like you, you realize like, oh, I thought it was okay, but it's not okay. And, and we, have, we have like all kinds of funny moments where that happens, right? But if you've lived a little while and you're honest, you, you, know, you know the reality of the serious moments where you sin and you think it's okay. And then you realize the consequences and you watch the effects and you experience the brokenness of the world that you are now participating in. And you realize this is so much worse than I could ever fix. We must realize this if we are ever going to pray. We ourselves are powerless to fix the problems. One of the reasons why we don't pray is that we don't realize our powerlessness. And one of the reasons we don't realize our powerlessness, I think, is because if you're anything like me, you're really self-centered. And, and so what we do in a context like ours is we think about our own problems and we kind of just obsess about our own problems and what's going on in my world and my life and my things. And then so what do I do? Well, I look and if I look at my life and my things and I'm just looking inward, then I think, well, these are things that I think I should be able to fix. And we live in a part of the world where this deception is really powerful because if I just get a better job or if I just find the right friends or if I find the right spouse or if I just get a better education or if I just do this, it looks like there are actually things that we can do. And so we get caught up in this deception of thinking that the problems that we're facing actually have solutions that we can accomplish and we deceive ourselves into doubting our powerlessness. One of, one of the ways we can fix this is by actually opening our eyes and realizing that you're not alone in this room right now, right? Do you actually, have you, have you considered the people in the room with you this morning? A people who are broken? There, there, are, there are people in this room, happy, smiley faces, singing songs to God. 
who are on the verge of losing hope. People who have contemplated ending it all. There are people, marriages that you look at and they're sitting beside each other and they look happy this morning, but in reality, even this week, they have talked about, can we make it? Are we going to get through this? There are people who have wrestled with addictions their entire lives, even as Christians, and they just don't know if there's any hope left for them. There are people who are waiting for results and news from doctors so many situations outside our control. People experiencing suffering and brokenness of living in this fallen world, the oppression, the pain, the anguish. Can you fix it? You can't fix it. It's a sense of our powerlessness that has to give birth to prayer. If we're going to pray, we have to be a people who are aware not only of the reality of our own problems, but the reality that we live in a world. Listen, this is just the church that we're talking about. If you step outside and walk around the community, if you, if you open the news, oh, heaven forbid you start reading the news and thinking about what's going on in our province or our country, the economy, the world, all the things that are happening, is this really stuff we can fix? If the last... Three years haven't shown us that we're powerless. Friends, I don't know what will. We need to open our eyes and stop being so self-centered and recognize our powerlessness. Or maybe we don't pray, not because we're unaware of our powerlessness. Maybe we don't pray because we're not confident of the goodness of God in His power. Sure, God has power. He created all things. But I don't really believe at this point I've suffered so much. I've experienced so much. I've seen so much. I've lost hope in God's goodness that He's actually going to come through on His promise. I can't call on His name because I'm just setting myself up for disappointment again. But friend, remember this reality that the people who call on the name of Yahweh in Genesis 4 are the people who were first called by name by Yahweh in Genesis 3. Remember they sinned? And they didn't come running back to God. They didn't come back crying out for mercy. They went and they hid in the trees of the garden and they covered themselves. They ran from him, but God sought them. God sought to do them good, even in the midst of their brokenness and sin and guilt and shame. He sought them and he gave them a promise when all they deserved was death. Our God is a good God, inclined to help, inclined to hear. He is one who is pleased when his people call on his name to keep his word. This is the nature of our God. So if we take our powerlessness and realize it and we marry it to the power and the promises of God, it will conceive and give birth to a heart that cries out, that calls out on his name. This is, this is where prayer is born. It's born in desperation and it's parents, or powerlessness and power. But there's more to a person than where they're born, right? Where, where does prayer live? Where does it grow up? Where does it flourish? Where does it thrive? What do we know about where prayer lives. Well, it grows from a baby. And, and I love this, if you have this experience. You, you, anybody that you know uh, really well, like maybe a friend that you've known for a number of years, and then, and then somehow you end up at their house and their mom's like, oh, do you want to see their baby pictures? Like, this is great, right? I love this. So you go and you look at their baby pictures and you've only known them as an adult. And then you see them like their little cute baby face and you're like, oh my gosh, I can see it, you know? Like, I've always wondered if baby Keith had a manly beard. Like, that would be like so cool, right? Like, to be able to go back and see like, 
Uh, see, but what happens is, if you know them now as an adult and you see their baby picture, you can see how everything that was there became this. It grew into this. It was all there already, right? It just grew. It expanded. It changed, but it was there. You can't do the same thing the other way. Like, you can't go from the adult, like I just try to do, and go, go, back, go back to the baby. When, what we see of prayer in Genesis 4, the simplicity, the beauty of the simplicity of simply calling on the name of God to do what he said he was going to do, that's the baby picture of prayer. And when it grows, it never becomes anything different. It, it grows, it develops, it matures, it expands, the scope increases, but the reality is simply this, prayer is calling on the name of Yahweh to fulfill his promises. Specifically, what I mean by that is this. God has given promises that we don't yet have. And so in the meantime, while we wait, we long. We long. We long for the fulfillment of the promise. So prayer, where does prayer live? Prayer lives in the longing. It lives in the anticipation, the desire, the desperate calling for God to do what he said and to bring the final promises to pass in the present. Prayer lives in the longing. I want to give you a couple snapshots of this. So again, if you're at a funeral um, and you're hearing the eulogy, another thing that will happen often is they'll have those boards or like pictures up on the screens and you can can see snapshots of someone's life where they live. This is that kind of a thing. I want to give you just a couple snapshots of how prayer lives in our longings. Look at uh, Genesis chapter 12 and see Abram. Abram is he's longing, longing for the promise of God. Genesis 12 verse 7 Then Yahweh appeared to Abram and said, to your offspring, to your seed, so here's the continuation of the promise, the seed of the woman coming down now through the descendants of Abram, to your offspring I will give this land. There's a promise. So he built there an altar to Yahweh who had appeared to him. From there he moved to the hill country on the east of Bethel and pitched his tent with Bethel on the west and Ai on the east. And there he built an altar to Yahweh. And what did he do? Why did he build an altar? What did he do? He called on the name of Yahweh. You gave the promise. I don't have it yet. So I'm calling on you to do what you said. This is, this is what prayer is. Look at how the verse finishes. And Abram journeyed on, still going towards the Negev. He doesn't have it yet. He's journeying. He's wandering. And in the meantime, he's longing. He's anticipating the coming of the promise. So what do you do when you long? You pray to the God who has promised. When, when God appeared to Abram, he gave him this promise that they would have the land and that his descendants would be fruitful and multiply. But there was also this word that he gave to Abram that for 400 years, his people would be enslaved in a land that was not their own and that they would need to be drawn out from that land. You see the fulfillment of that promise in the story of the Exodus. You see a similar pattern again, a longing for redemption, a longing for redemption that God promised. In Exodus chapter 2, Exodus 2 and verse 23, During those many days, the king of Egypt died and the people of Israel groaned because of their slavery. 
And what did they do? They're groaning in their slavery. They're longing for freedom, longing for redemption. What do they do? They cried out for help. Their cry, their calling on the name of the Lord for rescue for slavery came up to God. And God heard their groaning and God remembered his covenant. He remembered his promise. He said it and they called on him so he'll do it. He remembered his covenant with Abraham, with Isaac, and with Jacob. And God saw the people of Israel and God knew They reminded him of his words, and he remembered, and he knew, and he acted, he delivered. Prayer lives, prayer flourishes as we recall, as we remember the promises and the purposes of God and the power of God. And call on his name to simply do it. Now, prayer does grow up, like we said, right? It moves on from the baby picture. It doesn't change fundamentally, but it adds elements. I want to show you just one. As the the scriptures move on in Psalm 116, the psalmist reflects on prayer, and he says this, Psalm 116. He says, I love Yahweh. Why? Because he's heard my voice and my pleas for mercy. So what's going to be added here as prayer is maturing, as it's growing, what's being added is simply this. As he is calling on the name of Yahweh to deliver him, he's building his faith by remembering the past promises and fulfillments of Yahweh. Why? Why do I love God? Why do I call on him again? Because he heard me and he delivered me before. Verse 2 of Psalm 116, because he inclined his ear to me, Therefore, follow the logic. He heard me. He inclined his ear to me. He fulfilled his word. Therefore, I will call on him as long as I live. The snares of death encompassed me. The pangs of Sheol laid hold on me. I suffered distress and anguish. Then I called on the name of Yahweh. Oh, Yahweh, look how, this is not a complicated prayer. Oh, Yahweh, I pray, deliver my soul. That's it. The blessed simplicity of simply calling on his name and saying, God, save because you said you would. You've done it in the past. So I'm calling on you in the present because I believe you're going to continue to save me into the future. Look at how he moves on. Verse 12 of Psalm 116. What shall I render to Yahweh for all his benefits to me when I consider all his goodness, all his salvation, all that he's done for me? Verse 13. I will lift up the cup of salvation and call on the name of Yahweh. Verse 17. I will offer to you the sacrifice of thanksgiving and call on the name of Yahweh. If you are struggling to pray, believingly, calling on God to fulfill his promise, to fulfill his word, to do what he said, one of the greatest things you can do to strengthen and to mature your prayer is not simply to remember the promises, but his past deliverances. I can believe you for the future because I've seen you in the past. I've seen you come through, and I hope. I hope this is immediately significant to you as a Christian. Why can we pray with confidence? Why can we pray with boldness? Why can we cry out in our desperation to the the name of our God and expect that he will save? Because he has shown us time and again in the greatest and most significant ways that he has delivered. 
He has kept his word. So you remember, again, you go all the way back to Genesis 3, and from the very first moment that Adam and Eve sinned and are found out by God, and they're drawn out by God, and he engages them, and he gave them a promise. The promise in Genesis 4 that they're calling on the name of Yahweh to fulfill is the promise of a deliverer, the seed of a woman, and the promise that David is remembering and Abraham is longing for, and all the saints through all the Old Testament are calling out to God for. The promise is the seed of the woman who will come and crush the head of the serpent. And we have seen that Jesus Christ came, born of a virgin, and walked on this earth and lived a righteous life in our place. He did not sin. He did not give in when tempted like our first parents or, frankly, like us. He lived the righteous life that we were supposed to live but failed. And he died on the cross, and he took death. He was bit on the heel by the serpent, but he crushed the serpent's head. He crushed the power of death when he rose on the third day and walked out of the tomb, proving that all the promises of God are yes and amen in Christ. Our God has shown us in the death and resurrection of Jesus that he delivers like he said. For everyone who calls on his name will be saved. He keeps his word. He has shown us definitively in the death and the resurrection of Jesus. This is good news for you. If you walked in here this morning without a relationship with God, you don't know where you stand with God, here is good news for you. It is blessedly simple. Just say, God... gone in the ways of my parents. My first parents, Adam and Eve, like the rest of the world, I'm a sinner. I've not only experienced the brokenness of this world, I've contributed to it. I'm a part of it. And I know I've broken my relationship with you, but I long for you. And I trust the deliverance that you've provided in Christ. I'm putting my faith in Jesus I'm turning from my sins, Father, and I'm calling out to you to save me, to forgive me. As I put my trust in Jesus, I could never do enough. I'm powerless, but you are powerful and your promises are true. So I'm trusting in the promise of forgiveness, the promise of eternal life in Christ. And everyone who turns from their sins and cries out to God, calls out to God for deliverance, for salvation. He is a God who keeps his promises. And this is good news for us. If you've been walking with God for a week or a month or 10 years or 100 years, it doesn't matter. We still keep doing this one thing. When we call on him, when we call on his name to fulfill his word, we do it in light of the reality that he has already heard us. He's already answered us. He's already saved us. This is the confidence we have in calling out to God. Romans chapter 8 and verse 31. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? This is astounding. He's already given us the greatest promise and fulfillment. What could cost more than the life of his own son? If he's kept his word, if he's kept that promise, then all of his promises are true. And you can call on him believing, believing that he will hear and he will respond. He will respond if we call on him, not for anything, but for the keeping of his promises, the keeping of his word, the fulfilling of his purposes in this earth. Prayer, remember, prayer lives in the longing 
So the question is, if our prayer is going to flourish, does our longing match his promises? Does our longing match his word, what he said he was going to do? If, if one of the reasons we don't pray, like we said, is because we, we're missing our powerlessness or we're not aware of his power, I think another one of the reasons we don't pray is simply that we've dulled our longings. The, the, the aching. The awareness that this isn't it. That this is broken. That this world will never satisfy. But the promises of God are fullness of joy and healing and health and hope and all of it will come. And the longing that's awakened in that moment, what do we do? We turn on the TV, we go on Instagram, we start snapping people, we do whatever. We do whatever we can, we put in our AirPods, we do whatever we can to block it out because the aching actually hurts. And so we dull it. Rather than turning to God in prayer and say, God, I'm longing, I'm feeling longing right now. I need the end to come. I'm praying, come Lord Jesus. You've given promises, when will you fulfill them? Because that hurts. But it's joy. And it's where prayer lives. Have you thought about your longings this summer? Longing for the God who created all things and made them beautiful and satisfying. Longings for life, like true life. Life that is good, good. Life that is very good. Life in a world that is ordered, where everything has its place and everything is proportioned and fitting and everything is beautiful. Life where there is flourishing and multiplication. Life where we walk with God and He walks with us and we're His people and He's our God. Is there longing in you for this? Is there longing in you for a world where relationships are restored and they're not full of anguish and angst and sorrow and sadness and misunderstanding, but only openness and transparency and fullness of love? Is there any longing in you for this? Prayer lives in our longings, but we need to be honest and acknowledge them and rather than dulling them, stir them up. Because prayer lives... It lives in our longings. It's born in desperation. It lives in our longings. I want to think lastly, I want to think about where it dies. Where does prayer die? That's a bit of a weird question, right? It's, it seems kind of morbid to think. Like it's one thing, you know, at the beginning if I said, hey, think about your death and your funeral. It'd be a little bit weird if I was like, hey, see the person next to you? Think about their death. Like, that feels like a little bit different, right? So it feels a little bit weird to think about prayer dying because prayer seems sweet. Prayer seems like... Um, it's where we connect with God. It's where we meet with God. It's where we commune with Him. We've had sweet seasons of prayer and fellowship with God in this life. So why do we want to think about its death? Well, I think prayer um, it, one day will become to us like Highway 6 has become to me. You know, Highway 6, it's like west of the city. Um, if you're from Toronto like me, you're like, what's outside the city? It doesn't exist. Um, but if you're from any other part of the world, you know outside Toronto exists. And Highway 6, is it, it runs, uh, at least the stretch I'm most familiar with, it runs south and north. It runs from Cambridge or Guelph down towards the QEW where you can get on to go to St. Catharines. And that's a special stretch of highway for me because in my final year of college, when I was in Cambridge, I started dating this girl who was living in St. Catharines. And... Uh, I would borrow a friend's car because I was poor, I had no money, and I didn't have a car of my own. And so I'd borrow his car, and those drives were full of all kinds of sweet memories of 
driving down and the anticipation, right? I get to see her, I get to see her, this is gonna be great. And then, and then on the way home, you're just kind of floating. It's like, this was amazing. I was, what's next? And you're thinking about all the things and your mind is full, you're falling in love. And so this stretch of highway became sweet to me. But here, here's the thing, you know what's better than driving to see her back and forth is waking up in the morning and seeing her. Kissing her as we go to bed at night, eating meals together, enjoying making a home together. If someone was like, hey, do you want to go back to driving? Highway 6 was sweet, right? Do you want to go back to driving? I'd be like, that's dumb. That's so dumb. And it's a slow highway anyway. I don't like it. <laughs> we can be done with it because something so much better has come. When you think about the death of prayer, it's not tragic, it's beautiful. Because we still talk to God, he still hears our voice, but the prayer is swallowed up by something else. Here's the picture in Revelation chapter 19. How do the people cry out to their God? Then I heard what seemed to be the voice of a great multitude, like the roar of many waters, like the sound of many mighty peals of thunder, crying out, hallelujah for the Lord God the Almighty reigns. Let us rejoice and exult and give him the glory for the marriage of the Lamb has come and his bride has made herself ready and it was granted to her to clothe herself with fine linen, bright and pure, for the fine linen is the righteous deeds of the saints. No longer covering for shame, no longer fig leaves that we sow, no longer the temporary thing, the image that we celebrate now of marriage, but the real thing, the realest thing, we will be together with our God, fully and finally made beautiful and whole in his presence, joined together with him. And our prayers will no longer be crying out to his name to deliver us. Our prayers will be turned to praise. Why is prayer dead? Because all the promises have come true. Do you contemplate the inevitability of this? The certainty of this, the inescapability of this. John writes these familiar words in Revelation 21. Think about all we've seen of the God who created the heavens and the earth. Here's the end. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away. All the things that caused us so much pain. Everything fallen we've known in this world. Like a passing shadow, the first earth passed away. The sea was no more. All that separated us from God is gone. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them and they will be his people and God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes. Have you contemplated what the feeling of God's hand on your cheek will be? As the hotness of the last tears is wiped away. 
because it will happen. And death will be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore. For the former things have passed away. All, my friends, all will be made right. Because on that day we'll see the one who created us in his image and likeness. And in seeing him, we will become perfectly like him. All creation made new, restored. And we will be with our God. Do you believe that day is coming? The day when prayer is dead and only praise and joy remains? If, if you do... And that should change our relationship with prayer now, right? In the meantime. What, sh what should we do? We've thought about how prayer is born in our desperation. It lives in our longings and it'll die in the fulfillment of all the promises. So what should we do in the meantime while we still long, while we still wait? My friends, we pray. This is how the scriptures themselves end in Revelation 22. The spirit and the bride say, come. And let the one who hears say, come. Call on his name. Call on him to come and to bring all of his promises to pass. Let's pray. Father God, you have given to us precious and very great promises. You also know that our hearts are weak and frail. You see not only our belief, but our unbelief. And you see all the complications and all the doubts. You hear all the what ifs and the what abouts and the yeah buts. Father, we confess that part of our powerlessness is even our ability to imagine what the fulfillment of the promise will be. What will it be to see all things made new? So Father, we confess our unbelief, we confess our lack of imagination, our lack of ability to even rightly conceive of the promises, but this we know that every tear will be wiped away, that death and crying and pain will be no more, and that you will be our God, and we will be your people. That will never be in doubt. There will never again be a what if or a yeah, but. Father, we long for the day when a prayer is swallowed up in praise, but for now, in this moment, we call on your name to fulfill your word, Together as a church, we pray, come, Lord Jesus. Friend, we're going to uh, sing in response to what we've just heard. We're going to take a moment before we sing, though, to prepare our hearts.
the song that we're going to sing is going to remind us that it is well with our souls. The reality, though, as many of us came in here this morning, is that it is not well in the circumstances of our lives, in the states of our mind, in the lives of loved ones. Before we sing these words, I want to give you opportunity to contemplate and to ask if you actually believe them. Because the hope, the reality, is that the God who has saved, the God who sent his son, who suffered and died, who bore our sin, not in part, but the whole, he bore them on the cross, is the God who hears our prayer, cries, who hears our prayers now. We can confidently sing it as well, not because circumstances are well. Not because everything will go the way we want it to in this life. But because the day we just heard about is coming. And in light of that day, friends, I'll ask you to sing. If you believe it, it is well. Just take a moment now and pray quietly.